The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Handbag maker Coach pays a luxury price to catch up with European rivals, and South Korea goes to the moon. These are the issues we'll be tackling later in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and my colleague and co-host is, as ever, Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. But let's first turn our attention to Washington. President Donald Trump this week fired James Comey, the director of the FBI, since 2013. The reason given? Comey's handling last year of the investigation into Hillary Clinton using a private email server while she was Secretary of State. Clearly, 2016's news is the reason to suddenly fire someone. Joining us to talk about this and try and explain what is going on and what this means for the administration, for business, for the Justice Department, for the FBI, is our very own Gina Chon. Hi, Gina. Hi, guys. So let's try and make sense of this. So President Trump fires Comey, and Comey's delivering a speech at the time he's fired all the way across the country in California. So, Gina, this is a bit of a big surprise here. Comey and Trump seem to get on, especially given the role Comey played in reopening the investigation into Clinton's emails right before the election. What has gone wrong since then? Yeah, it was an odd turn of events. Uh, As you said, um, Trump has actually praised Comey for his handling of the Clinton investigation in the past, including just after he took office in January um, when he was meeting with law enforcement officials. He gave Comey sort of a weirdly warm, like, bro hug kind of thing and and called him out especially. Uh, So it's been a, a crazy turn of events here. But as he said, he does cite the handling of the email probe, and he said it was based on recommendations from the two top officials at the Justice Department, one of whom, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, actually recused himself from another probe into Russian meddling and possible ties to the Trump campaign, which is why his deputy AG was left to provide the rationale for Comey's firing. So the the rationale is Clinton's emails, but but A, the deputy has to step in because Sessions is conflicted on Russia. And B, in his own letter firing Comey, Trump talks about the, the Russian investigation and how Comey allegedly told him three times that he wasn't under investigation himself. So h- how do we square that circle? I, I don't know if we can. Uh, it, it was interesting that Trump noted that, especially because Comey had just testified last week before the U.S. Senate in one of the numerous hearings that lawmakers have had on uh, the Russian interference. And Comey was asked point blank of whether the president was a part of that probe. And Comey actually declined to answer that question. So it it seemed like in Trump's letter he was trying to dissuade the public from um, believing he was part of it. But of course, we have yet to actually hear that from Comey himself. So where do we go next with this? I mean, we we were wondering whether there would be, a, I think, a lot of calls from even some Republicans for a special investigator to take over the Russia investigation. Um, Mitch McConnell, the, the Senate majority leader, seemed to have put a dampener on that the day after the firing. And yet a lot of his party members seem to be rather concerned about the timing of this 
of this firing. So what do you think is going to happen next? Yeah, I think as this story unfolds and we learn more, it may be harder for McConnell to really avoid having any sort of independent commission or further looks into either the Russia probe and now the circumstances under Comey's firing. Um, There are now numerous reports coming out of Capitol Hill, including Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has said that actually just uh, weeks before, days before Comey's firing, he asked for more resources uh, from the Justice Department for the Russia probe. And the person he made that request to was, again, the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who, again, provided the rationale for Comey's firing. So there's a lot of... uh, Uh, sort of uh, unclear and and strange circumstances around this that I think is is going to be hard to to keep putting off. Even the Republican chair of the Senate Intel Committee, who, who had also been investigating the Russian probe, called the timing of Comey's firing and the rationale behind it troubling. Um, Senator John McCain and others have made similar comments. So this is really going to bubble up and I think make it harder for Trump to push through any of his other policy agendas, including tax reform and infrastructure spending. So, Gina, it strikes me that that the Senate is, or, or Congress in general, is beginning more and more to do its job, even though it's Republican dominated, like the presidency is now run by a nominal Republican. That's got to be a good sign for the rule of law in general terms. But there is a worry here, isn't there, that first of all, you've got a president who is um, butting in on an active investigation, even if he claims he's firing Comey for for another reason. And you've also got the Justice Department looking rather complicit in this. So what what does that mean for uh, the rule of law in general, and then how that affects both Trump policies, but also how you say the Justice Department investigates various financial crimes and other crimes around uh, the country and around the world. Yeah, I think that's going to be problematic for them because they are now seen as as possibly a politicized organization that is no longer independent from the White House. And as you say, the Justice Department investigates a lot of cases involving companies overseas, whether it's European banks, whether it's corporations, like in the uh, the Volkswagen emissions scandal case. And a lot of those instances rely on law enforcement help from overseas, including treaties that are based on mutual legal assistance. But part of those agreements mean that the partners actually both recognize the rule of law and that law enforcement isn't um, a political arm. And I think they're going to have a harder time proving that after these moves. And what about policies in general? I think you've made this point several times in the past, ever since Trump was elected, that that things like the investigations into into Russia ties risks getting in the way of of the uh, congressional and political uh, and policy agenda. Does this throw much of a spanner in the works, do you think, or, or will we still see tax reform trying to go through the health care plan going to, co- to going to Senate now? How does that play through, do you think? 
Yeah, it is going to be a lot harder for him to push his agenda through. He's already finding that the clock works much slower in Washington. And there are certain things that have to happen first before he can introduce his tax reform bill. One of them is the budget plan. And that will actually mean um, bipartisan support. The Republicans only have a slim majority in the Senate. So there are still a lot of issues, uh, including infrastructure spending as well, that will need uh, some Democrats to come on board. And they are definitely in no mood to participate or, or be um, shown supporting anything uh, on the Trump agenda, especially given this uh, latest move on Comey. Okay, Gina, thanks for talking us through that. Um, let's get you back on next week uh, to discuss the next person to be kicked out of the administration. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks. Spiffy handbag maker Coach just decided to buy Kate Spade for $2.4 billion. We have Kate Duguid here in the studio to discuss why Coach decided to gobble up its rival for a hefty price tag when just last week it was proving it was nicely humming along on its own. Kate, why did they go after Kate Spade? Coach has said that they're interested in buying Kate Spade to appeal to more millennial buyers. Um, but what it really looks like is Coach's attempt to become an LVMH, a caring, these European luxury conglomerates. Now, the luxury sector contracted 1% last year, but both caring and LVMH performed excellently. Caring's stock was up nearly 100%, and LVMH about 61%. So what are they doing that the other luxury stores don't seem to be doing? If the luxury is con- contracting, why are these two big conglomerates managing to outperform? So it's got to be a little bit that they're gobbling up market share, but it's also um, that having a diverse portfolio of brands really helps. This is a market that's particularly affected by travel, by currency, by geopolitical shifts. And so having brands that perform well in Europe helps in a year when China's GDP has has contracted. So if handbag maker Coach is buying handbag maker Kate Spade, which is mostly US-based, how does that help diversify? So that's a great that's a great question, Anthony. Coach has said that Kate Spade will help them appeal to more millennial shoppers. But as you mentioned, Kate Spade appeals to the same sorts of buyers as Coach handbags already, sort of a mid-market American consumer. Kate Spade is almost unknown in Asia, uh, so it won't really help them expand there. And also, it will require a turnaround strategy in the same way that Coach has. Right. So it's it's almost looking for to like to go in and do the same kind of cost cuts and turnaround. So like, that was what I remember you saying last week. This was about taking away discounts, not selling them in certain stores that may sell them at lower prices. So basically, it's a, I succeeded with Coach. The CEO says, I'll do it with Kate Spade. Well, but the thing is, they, they still haven't quite turned around Coach yet. I mean, they're on their way up, right? But they haven't, you know, they still have some more work to do. Like, in your opinion, do you think that, like, are they just getting too far ahead of themselves and in front of their skis when maybe they should just kind of keep their head down and be like, all right, let's finish doing our own work here before we go off and, and start gobbling up kind of similarly pr- priced products and, and um, also a, a very troubled company? I, I think you're exactly right. And this is what we were saying last week, is that the turnaround really started in, in 2014 with the appointment of uh, their CEO, Victor Luis. And while they've had same-store sales growth, and in the last quarter they reported an estimates beating 9% increase in profit, um, their shares are still down 22.8%, or were as of last week. Um, 
from their from their 20, 2014 high. And so, yeah, as you said, Jen, there is a lot of work still to be done. Shareholders, though, quite like this. Right, The stock was up, what, 6% on the announcement. So they're clearly buying into this pseudo LVMH expansion strategy, or at the very least, uh, we've got, this guy's proven that he can cut costs and that he can turn around a brand, he can do it there. So, I mean, because I think, as you were saying, the numbers, financially at least, don't really add up for this deal, do they, at the moment? They don't. The company has said that they're expecting $50 million in cost cuts, which are, are worth about $320 million today, and compare that to the to the premium of about $515 million that they're paying. You know, that that doesn't quite, quite add up on paper. But as you said, coaches' owners still seem to like the deal, and I think it really is because there's faith in this model, faith in this European conglomerate model. Faith in the Europeans. Well, <laughs> let's see where the Americans can go with that over the next couple of years. Kate, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's great to have you back to talk through Coach's most recent move. Thank you. South Korea just elected Moon Jae-in as its next president after its predecessor was drummed out of office and now faces bribery charges. The liberal politician Moon is facing a lot, including amped-up bluster from North Korea and, at home, the growing dominance of family-owned conglomerates. Joining us here in New York to discuss the challenges is Asia editor Pete Sweeney. Welcome, Pete. Uh, Thanks for having me. All right. So why don't you take us through, I guess, first of all, how his predecessor was – she's in prison now? Like what's going on in South Korea? So, yeah, the the collapse of the park regime, as it were, um, has been, you know, a massive drama that's been ongoing in North Korea. And it's come alongside with all these other issues with North Korea and so on. What happened, you know, in this particular case was – um, you know, Park is part of this political dynasty in South Korea. Um, she had, you know, this family ally, a close aide who was peddling influence and doing all sorts of sketchy things, um, which pulled in uh, Samsung uh, in one case. So the Samsung heir, Jay Lee, is also in trouble. Um, it, the permutations and ripples have been <laughs> quite complex. This sounds oddly familiar is, is, <laughs> is what I'm noting here. But, yeah. but do proceed. Well, yeah. So, I mean, basically, uh, you have this president that's been, I mean, this is a first um, in terms of being put out of power this way. Um, But it's coming, you know, in the context of kind of wider dissatisfaction in South Korean society over the direction of the economy. You know, youth unemployment is quite high. Um, Economic growth is, you know, kind of... uh, flatter than some people would like, you know, but it's it's kind of going through the, the, the stabilizing, you know, kind of pains that like you see in Japan or, or Taiwan at this point, this kind of crisis of, you know, kind of a comfortable society, but something increasingly expensive and seen as dominated, you know, by the chables, by these huge conglomerates, you know, that are that are tied in with the, you know, with the government. So, um, you know, behind this election of, of Moon, you know, is this hope that there'll be this deep, profound change. So this, of course, the election has come on the back of of the scandal. But like you're saying, that, that these economic issues have been percolating for some time. So how much power does does Moon actually have to make changes after this election? Well, I mean, obviously, it's going to be difficult to forge consensus here. You know, the, certainly the park uh, supporters are still very much, you know, on the side of her policies, you know, in terms of North Korea. Um, they're very worried that Moon is going to go back to the uh, the sunshine policy of decades past that was seen as kind of failed. Of course, the not sunshine policy has also failed. So there's that. Um, economically, in terms of reform, you know, the entrenched interests are quite entrenched. People are going to closely watch to see how Samsung is handled, um, you know, whether this case is handled according to the rule of law 
you know, and whether, uh, you know, these, these companies are restructured in a more equitable way with minority shareholders having more power and so on and, and so that, forth. That, is that easy to do? No. You know, this, these are entrenched power structures. You know, this was a democracy that involved out of a dictatorship. It's got very powerful families. You know, these firms are critical to the operation of the economy. Um, there's a lot of moving parts here in terms of trade, the relationship with China, North Korea, and the U.S., so uh, it's going to be a difficult uh, presidency. But, you know, the one upside is at least the markets are celebrating it. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they've been um, pretty sanguine the whole way through, it seems. Yeah, the, the, the stock market is at like an all-time high. Um, you know, if, if, if people were afraid that, uh, you know, there was going to be a war with North Korea, nobody is pricing that into credit default swaps for South Korean, which are, you know, haven't really done that much. Um, you know, yeah, so there's been kind of at least a hope of, of progress, you know, but we've seen this with other, you know, these kind of transitional things where you can you can have kind of a relief rally. Yeah. And we'll have to watch because certainly the economic problems have not gone away. But, I mean, you know, more interestingly, you know, foreign investment and fund flows are going into South Korea, um, which is interesting, not just because it indicates that people aren't really that worried about a major change of the status quo vis-a-vis the North, but also, you know, China has been trying to hammer South Korea economically for implementing this THAAD system, this this theater uh, ballistic air, you know, missile defense, um, this U.S. thing. And, um, you know, so there's been all this, this Chinese retaliation against, you know, Korean pop bands and so on and so forth. But that does not appear to have hit the economy that hard either. Pop bands don't dominate the economy? In, in, they in, do. In, in they Asia. do That's not. surprising. Oh, there. I mean, there's been a bunch of other stuff. But, um, you know, it, it, it is... You know, it, and it's it's kind of alienated people on the left and the, and the right in you know South Korea who whatever they think of of about North Korean approach you know certainly don't appreciate China just trying to to force them to make a decision um, through these fairly unpleasant you know and public measures of going after firms like Latte and you know cracking down on tourism flows and stuff like that. But the economy seems to have shrugged that off more or less. So, Pete, I want to go back to what you were talking about, the sunshine theory. So basically that is the idea that Moon is going to be a little more uh, – it's going to be softer in terms of diplomatic relations with North Korea versus just completely cutting them off. Is that the idea? Right. Well, so it's just a question of engagement. And, like, you know, so there's these these joint kind of industrial parks, you know, that were opened up that were supposed to, you know, serve as these, these channels for – you know, greater economic integration. Um, you know, the real question is, I mean, you know, <laughs> no policy has worked with North Korea. Um, the stance of the, the, the officials has not mattered really that much okay. to the way that regime has operated. But but how do you how do you view him, Moon, now, given that President Trump is off saying all this stuff about yeah he wants a billion dollars he wants he wants he wants south korea to to fork over a billion dollars or something for the missile defense now i mean that's that's a big own goal on the 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 american part uh you know because this was a regime that's already not that inclined to be pro-american there's a strong anti-american sentiment on the the south korean left always has been and this just hands Mm. them another reason you know to be more hostile to the states and and try and warm up to north korea but uh you know, fundamentally, the moving parts there are, are you know, China is a huge player here um, in terms of, you know, because they're the ones who are kind of keeping the North Korean regime afloat, not South Korea. So how that all plays out is not entirely up to South Korea. I mean, it's up to the states and, and very much mm-hmm. to China. Um, but yeah, sure, he can warm it back up. He can push back on the U.S. Uh, China will be more friendly to that, certainly. Um, but it's going to remain the same very intractable problem, given the nature of the North Korean regime. 
that it was before. Um, you know, so the risk is that, you know, Moon, you know, takes a heavy stand on like having something called a sunshine policy or some other big label, you know, and pushes forward on it and it backfires or doesn't produce anything. And then, you know, he is associated with yet another failed North Korean policy. I suppose if he's proactive about it, uh, rather than just sitting there allowing North Korea to do whatever it does with China, it looks like it's a policy that fails as opposed to a, a no action, which you can you can almost get past that just by saying, look, we leave them alone. They screw it up. It's not up to us. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, there's there's so many moving parts. Uh, what's happening there is fascinating because like China is really changing the way it's looking at the North Korean situation. The language that's coming out of state media there you know, is 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 quite markedly different. Um, you know, certainly popular sentiment in China itself among ordinary people is not pro-North Korea. Um, they just don't know what else to do with it. Um, but, you know, and arguably China, you know, really made a big mistake with this attempt to punish South Korea economically. It didn't work. It alienated, you know, people who would ordinarily be inclined to be more sympathetic to China than the U.S. Um, but if they back off from that, you know, you could get some economic dividends to the moon regime and, you um, you know, everybody understands at this point that, you know, it's just not a question of South Korea taking one stance or another. You know, the approach to North Korea has to be, you know, a concerted effort by all the parties. So he might get a break on that one at least. Right. Pete, thanks for coming on the show. Great to see you again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Anthony Curry, as well as our guests, Kate Duguid, Pete Sweeney, and Gina Chan. Our producers this week are Bethel Hopday and Andrew D'Antonio. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. We'd love to hear them. We'll be back next week and would love you to listen again. Thanks for joining us.